My name's Lloyd Danzig, and on this podcast, we explore the topics and trends that are shaping the creation and dispersion of artificial intelligence around the globe. Welcome to the AI Experience. All right. Thanks a lot, everyone, for joining us again today for another episode of the AI Experience. Happy to be here again uh, with Michael Stiefel uh, calling in uh, from Maui, I believe it is. Uh, Michael, good to have you with us today. We are going to discuss an area that you had actually, I don't want to say brought to my attention, but recommended be the topic of our conversation today. And it turned out that when we dug a little bit deeper into what we wanted to talk about, uh, there is a large expanse of subtopics and sub-subtopics within this genre that, that deserve attention. And so I think we'll probably split this episode in, into two and cover kind of the first part today and the second part next week. And, and with that topic specifically is uh, the topic of use cases for artificial intelligence in warfare uh, and how AI and machine learning are changing the nature of warfare. So uh, without that said, uh, Michael, thanks a lot for joining us. Appreciate you being here. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Let's let's talk about the way in which artificial intelligence and machine learning today uh, is currently being deployed on the battlefield in the military from the technology side. What should people think of when they hear that AI is being used in warfare? Are we talking about autonomous, anthropomorphic-looking cyborg uh, robot soldiers? Are we talking about the use of facial recognition software that enhances security? Uh, are we talking about, you know, weapons guidance, all of the above, none of the above? Is there predictive policing that makes its way into the military use cases? Uh, what are ways in which the military and armed forces are actually using artificial intelligence today? Well, I think the first way to answer your question is to sort of divide it into three broad categories. Human in the loop, human on the loop, and human out of the loop. And what I mean by that is that human in the loop means that the artificial intelligence agent, and we'll come back to this term, agent because it's a very important one, is totally under the control of some human. The human tells it what the target is, the human fires it, the human um, gives it all the information. So the AI there is used in a very restrictive way to sort of optimize what is being done. The human on the loop means that the AI is a little agent, is a little more autonomous, but the human has the right to cancel the mission or abort the mission if something goes wrong. And then of course, there's the human out of the loop, which is a situation where the AI is totally autonomous. So when most people think about artificial intelligence in warfare, they usually think about the, you know, the cyborg, the um, clone army they might have remembered from Star Wars, <laughs> right. other science fiction. But really, most of the AI today 
is focused either in human in the loop or human on the loop. However, the more radical changes, which we'll talk about later, come from when we start to think about human out of the loop. Now, that being said, there is something else to realize, and it's, it's, it's buried in this word agent, which I used before, is you have to remember that artificial intelligence per se is not a classical weapon with one possible exception that I'll get to in a minute, but it's not explosive like gunpowder gun or a nuclear weapon. So it's not going to revolutionary, uh, revolutionize warfare in that way. It is not a improvement in armor or protection that is going to make a weapon system stronger or more defensible. And it is not a weapon system like a tank or a horse that is going to make the army more maneuverable. Really, what AI is all about in warfare is agency. And just let me briefly mention the one exception, which we'll probably come back to later, is, of course, when AI is used to attack the infrastructure of a country, then, you know, that, then now you're playing with semantics. Is that a weapon or is that not? But let's leave that aside. We'll come back probably to that in the, in the second part of the talk. So when you're talking about agency, you're talking about what degree of independence does the agent have? And the, what makes AI so different is because the speed at which it can act or react, which of course is very different from that when a human works with a weapon. So that's sort of where I wanna lay the framework to think about it. And I think when most people think about AI, they think about the clones, but really what we should focus on right now for the immediacy is the AI in the loop or AI on the loop. I love that uh, trichotomy uh, as a way of breaking this down. So let's maybe put a finer point on that for a second. I'm imagining that uh, AI in the loop, maybe an example of that would be uh, a fighter pilot that is using uh, a missile which will be guided by processes that, let's say, utilize machine learning to enhance the precision of the guidance, or perhaps even utilize, let's say, computer vision and other types of pattern recognition to alert the pilot when to fire the weapon. Uh, and maybe even, uh, you know, uh, or, or let's leave it at that. Is that an accurate example of an AI in the loop? And what would have to be different to make that on the loop? For example, you can take, that's a good example. You know, it's even more than that because you can use the machine learning to help the weapon get to its target, whether it's another airplane going under evasive maneuvers or you are looking for a target. For example, 
suppose you're, you know, you're fighting a terrorist war and you're looking for a particular terrorist, you know, you could use photo recognition combined with information about where this person may have made that hiding to actually look for that person. So it's, yes, it's everything you say and even more. And then what would be an example where the AI has a little bit more uh, control, uh, if you will? What, what, what would an AI on, or sorry, human on the loop example, maybe using even a fighter pilot, what would that look like just so we can oh. really differentiate? Okay, so even without even the fire pilot, you can look at, for example, these drones that are remote controlled, where the the pilot essentially sits somewhere in the United States and pilots this drone to accomplish certain tasks. And the reason why I picked that one rather than the fighter pilot is because the fighter pilot defending itself, attacking is more intrinsically involved in that. So... So let's say you launch a drone or more than that, a swarm of drones, because remember, artificial intelligence agents can get rather cheap because what's the most expensive thing about an airplane? Making sure the pilot survives. (laughs) Right. And also the fact that the fighter pilot cannot take certain accelerations or maneuvers because even though the, right, even though the plane can withstand them, the pilot cannot. Yes. So once you take the pilot out of the plane, you have a piece of of weapon that can be much more maneuverable, and you can have more of them. So people very often talks about these swarms of AI agents that can be perhaps separate or come together, you know, like troops to focus on it. They can hover around and they can find a target and attack that target with as much as it, it, it needs or hold things in reserve. And so you, so what happens then is you, let's say you're this drone pilot or commander of a whole bunch of drones you set it out to give it a certain target, let's say this moving target to go find and destroy this, you know, this small unit of, of soldiers. And then what you do, of course, is you let the, you know, you've given them the information where to find them, perhaps what the soldiers look like, what the heat signatures of the weapons are and all that. And then you let it go and you watch it. And then you decide, well, maybe something happens and I have to abort the mission. For example, I've been told, and I don't know if this is true, that embedded with U.S. soldiers are actually lawyers who give advice to the commanders whether what they want to do is legal or not. So suppose, for example, you were going after this and then the agent and all of a sudden their family happened to be there at this particular time unexpected. So the human would then abort the mission. So that's an example of something like that. That's, that, that's very interesting. And it's, it's starting to just become more and more clear as you're going through these examples, uh, how critical of 
a component, the human is in a lot of these cost-benefit analyses and in a lot of the constraints uh, that exist. Uh, and my first inclination, and I think many per- people's first inclination, might be to say, well, that's great. Uh, all this stuff you're talking about is very dangerous. Uh, if we can remove humans from the human fighter pilot, uh, the phrase human fighter pilot, and, and therefore not have to expose them to defense against other enemy combatants and potentially fatal G-forces and things like that. Uh, is, is that the end of how people should be thinking about it? Or what, I guess, you know, in, in another way of saying, and not to have too much of a loaded or, or pointed question, because I think I know a bit how I feel here, what might be some of the impacts that people aren't thinking of that are are, are negative externalities that could arise from either partially or we'll get to completely removing the human from the loop. Just talk about partially removing the human from the loop here. What kind of negative externalities should we be worried about? Is it bias seeping in to algorithms so that just like the way police surveillance could inadvertently lead to an incorrect arrest, uh, drone surveillance could lead to, you know, an incorrect uh, missile launch that that harms the wrong people? Is it is it things like that sort of tactical mistakes uh, that perhaps people should be concerned about? Or, or are there other downsides to removing the humans from, or at least partially from some of these decisions, even if it does make them safer? Well, let's answer that question in a rather simple way. Think of how far we are truly from autonomous vehicles. And that's a relatively simple problem compared to warfare. So the technology really is not there yet for making drones or weapons to do the kinds of things that you were talking about. Of course, I'm speaking now as a citizen of of the West, and I don't know what's in the mind of a weapons developer in Russia or China. Okay, so let's Let's leave that question for the moment because that will lead us to the very interesting question of what it mean what it means for arms control with artificial intelligence weapons. So let's 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 postpone that question. And because that gets that gets into the question of artificial intelligence and how it changes strategy, which is a rather interesting one. But I will Add at this point, I don't know if you're aware that there was a situation, I believe, in the 1980s and how close the U.S. and the Soviet Union at, you know, at the time, which was under a great deal of stress because it, the beginning of the breakup was happening. You know, there was a U.S. Army exercise that led the the Soviets to think that the U.S. was about to invade. And apparently there were some computer models that allegedly this, the Soviet Union had, which gave, interpreted the U.S. actions as a possible pre- prelude to a first strike. And then, of course, there is the famous story whose the name of the a uh, Soviet officer eludes me for the moment, but then there was the case of their newly installed software system, 
that it turned out because it was newly installed and it was buggy, was giving indications that the United States was about to attack or in the process of attacking. Now, how close we actually came to war um, is debatable because some people allege that if it wasn't for this sort of lieutenant colonel in the reserve, you know, who's basically civilian saying this is a buggy piece of software, and the military commanders who had, got, had gotten this message would have just kicked the message upstairs without understanding. The historians disagree on this, but very clearly the software, it's, it, it's very difficult to debug software, especially machine learning software, if you don't have a lot of cases and you don't have a lot of situation. The way I like to think about machine learning is it's like Groundhog Day. Remember the movie Groundhog Day? Of course. <laughs> well, how did Phil Murray's character become so good at music and art and all these things? Because essentially, we don't know in the movie, but it must have been thousands of times he went through the same situation and finally learned all these things. That's essentially what machine learning is. But if you're dealing with a threat that you don't have a lot of examples for, it's hard to see how a machine learning algorithm would really work. And you're back to good old fashioned AI where you are starting to have some sort of expert system that starts to look for this and that and the other thing. And that's very subject, as we've talked about, the human fallibilities, because this is, this is why the weather prediction systems don't find 100-year storms, because they've never seen them before. So I, I guess that brings up uh, a question of if it is inevitable that there will eventually be algorithms that are directing the operation of machines which can kill people and eliminate enemy combatants and, and things like that. If that is inevitable or if it is at least inevitable that certain military commanders will want to try and utilize technology like that such that it will be developed, how ought those algorithms uh, be trained? Uh, how, you know, you mentioned that there's a lot of these wartime situations that will require AI to essentially be in, you know, completely unsupervised learning mode uh, in order to first gather data in the first place. You know, how, I guess, should we think about the, the idea of developing algorithms that will power machines that can potentially kill people and not only developing but but training uh, those algorithms should should we ban it completely and and you know if so who, who would be the correct stakeholders to even go about suggesting a ban or prohibition or level of licensing or surveillance or oversight on the development of such algorithms uh, i threw like five or six different questions in there obviously yes. but all, all all related to this topic uh that i'm sure you have thoughts on and i guess please feel free to answer any or just some of those questions that i just threw out so i'll answer some of them in sort of the order they it comes to me and then you'll if you have more questions i didn't answer so first of all you have to distinguish in this situation where civilians are involved and where civilians are not involved. So when we're talking about, for example, naval warfare or plane-to-plane -plane combat, you are in a relatively regime where there are not a lot of civilians. A lot of the AI development is used, however, 
to help people fighting in city situations where there are a lot of enemy combatants hiding among civilians. And that's a very different set of circumstances than the ones that we're talking about where you have naval or air units attacking land, military targets or other airplanes or or ships. So that's the first distinction you have to make of those situations because it's it's, it's very, very different when you're using, uh, you know, as you quite rightly say, unsupervised machine learning that's still learning at human's expense in a closed environment, which a lot of humans in a city or metropolitan area where you're fighting house to house and a, you know, naval or military engagement. That being said, that also raises another question, which we probably want to explore a little more later, is this whole notion of Army, Navy, Air Force, strategic bombers, does that make any sense in a world of artificial intelligence warfare? You have to remember, the, the, you know, the military is an extremely conservative organization, or tends to be theirs. Look at the difficulties in getting, you know, the tank replacing the horse, or the whole Billy Mitchell trial over air power. You know, and that, that works also both ways when the military had very, it was difficult to convince them that strategic bombings of cities actually doesn't work. So the a whole innate conservatism, not political, but sort of social conservatism inside a, a large organization with lots of traditions, such as the military. So for example, do you really need to think in terms of, well, th- think, think of an aircraft carrier. Give you, give you an example, which we project power through planes being launched from an aircraft carrier. Now, that aircraft carrier is largely defenseless. So you, what you have is surrounding the aircraft carrier. You have cruisers with missiles. You have anti-submarine naval vehicles. You have a whole assorted set of ships in this aircraft carrier fleet, if you wish, surrounding it. If you don't need planes anymore, but you can launch drones that can stay afloat for long periods of time, then not only do you not need an aircraft carrier, but you don't even need the ships that surround the aircraft carrier. So you you really start to begin to rethink what does it mean to have the traditional military organizations? And perhaps you should have organizations around the tasks that the AI uh, has to participate in, for example, land for, for, or reconnaissance or planning. And that you know, raises a whole other set of questions about the impact of artificial intelligence. So I think you have to distinguish when you talk about ethics. And again, what does ethics mean in this situation? Because you're talking about computer code. You're not talking about, you know, centrifuges or diversion of plutonium or, 
you know, manufacturing large weapons, which you can see factories from the sky. So what are you going to enforce? How are you going to know what the algorithms of a opponent's AI going to be? Because even if you capture one today, the algorithms could change tomorrow because the algorithms change very, very quickly and can change very, very quickly. So it's not even clear to me what ethics means except the type that you self-impose upon yourself. But, and this gets to the question, which we probably want to post about until next time, is what it means for arms control in a world of artificial intelligence. We remember, as I said early on, and that's why I said it early on, this is not a weapon system. This is about agency and control over other weapon systems. So does that sort of answer your question or take yes, a step towards uh, answering your question? No, no, no. Absolutely uh, answers many, if not most of them, but brings up, I think, I think I know what the most common thing that, that audience members will likely be thinking right now, uh, or would have been thinking a few seconds ago when you were talking, was um, you had described uh, some of the scenarios that could, could go awry and, and how the cost-benefit analyses change when the human is removed, human out of the loop, uh, you know, AI implementations, for example, uh, you mentioned and used the phrase, you know, what what happens when uh, we don't need planes anymore, or when we just need a single uh, plane or single vehicle rather than an entire escort for that vehicle and, and things of that nature. Obviously, there are all different machine learning and AI problems and challenges involved in, not let alone auto, uh, let alone autonomous driving, but also these implementations in warfare. Do you have a sense or can give people a sense, just roughly order of magnitude speaking, how close or far are we to having parts of the military, branches of the military, even even a, an entire military troop uh, or battalion or special force group that is entirely devoid of, of humans? I, I just want to get a sense and give people a sense of, in your opinion, I think we're very far from that. But like five years, ten years, a hundred years. Uh, obviously, not looking for anyone to predict the future, but you know, just trying to get a sense for, from you on on how imminent on the time horizon you think it is that we would truly be able to remove humans from even a small part of the military equation. Oh, oh a small part. Well, suppose you're trying to probe the infrastructure of your opponent, find out where their weak points are. We've had interruptions in our energy supply network because of attacks. Now, it's how much of this is right now artificial intelligence or how much of it is just looking for exploits in code, but certainly you could automate artificial intelligence, and people are talking about this right now, to probe for weaknesses in infrastructure or defensively to find those weaknesses and patch them. So this is probably one of the first places where you're going to see artificial intelligence completely operate independently. They find an exploit, and you think about all the stuff that's on the, on the public internet, and how much infrastructure that we just don't have hardened because we're using this, and that's a whole other, of course, discussion of you know how the internet was never built to be secure and the computers we use on the internet were never meant to be networked. But the result of that is we had a massive exp- 
exposure of infrastructure, which is clearly something that's subject to automated searching for weaknesses, automatic exploitation, or searching and automatic fixing. So that's one of the first places you're probably going to see humans completely out of the loop. Now, the interesting thing about that is that changes the whole nature of what it means to be at war. Now, we used to have this, and I, and I, I don't want to say quaint notion because that sounds, I'm being a little flippant, but we had this notion once upon a time that you actually declared war on somebody. In fact, that's one of the powers discussed in the Constitution, who has the right to declare war. But it's not clear anymore, given the world that we operate in, especially when you go into artificial intelligence, attacks, defenses against critical infrastructure. If you're ever fully at peace or if you're ever fully at war, this is not a cold war. It's not a hot war, but it is certainly a cool war. So in some sense, you're now in, you're almost back to medieval Europe or China where the warlords used to go after it, where you're in a perpetual state of competition among states. And sometimes it's economic and sometimes it's military and sometimes it's attacks on infrastructure, which you can do without leaving your seat or sending a bomber. This brings up, I think, uh, a really interesting uh, topic, which is that, and you've made allusions to this already, you know, when I think of AI and warfare and when we were first gearing up to do this podcast, and, and I think, honestly, that the average person, when they hear about AI or machine learning in warfare, is thinking about the use cases that can be broken down along the trichotomy that you described, uh, human in the loop, human on the loop, human out of the loop. Uh, but generally, physical implementations, uh, AI-powered robots, autonomous tanks, autonomous tanks that are not only self-driving, but whose guns know how to fire and who to fire at and to, to shoot, uh, maybe weapons guidance systems or GPS systems, you know, maybe some type of night vision uh, technology that is actually powered by machine learning to enable people to essentially see at night as if it were day in, in ways that weren't possible before. Uh, but honestly, one of the parts that I had never really considered until you had pointed it out in our previous conversation and now now just did here is that there probably and almost actually definite most likely is going to be an entire redefinition of what warfare is once artificial intelligence technology evolves to the point and is being deployed in the service of certain ends. For example, as you're describing, uh, attacking infrastructure. Uh, you know, Going back to Stuxnet has been the idea of attacking centrifuges and who knows what other types of infrastructure, power grids, water systems, uh, you know, traffic systems, and, and things like that, that can both be defended by but attacked by uh, you know, new types of artificial intelligence and algorithms. And in, essentially, it's almost a, a question we're asking what does the future of warfare look like if AI is being infused and perhaps we are being a bit biased toward taking our current image and definition of warfare and imposing a futuristic definition of AI onto that or injecting it into that type of warfare, whereas AI and warfare are actually both 
developing and evolving in parallel. And so I think, you know, what we should do, and, and I think this will be a nice segue with which to do it, uh, is have the second part of this episode uh, for next week be really focused on on that question. You know, forgetting about some of these, call it traditional uh, implementations, how is AI changing the nature of warfare? Uh, you know, how will AI be used to attack infrastructure? Is there an asymmetry between using AI to play defense and offense, or will everyone just be safe as long as the AI is battling the AI? I think there is an entire podcast and episode that we should do there. So I'm tempted to say let's let's cut it and and we'll pick this back up for the next episode. But just Michael, any last thoughts you might want to offer, almost as a teaser and segue? You know, what is the difference perhaps between some of the concerns and considerations that we should have regarding AI powered weapon systems or guidance systems compared to this new, almost reimagined issue of AI being used as part of and to attack infrastructure and, and thereby really change the nature of warfare? So, in the term of a teaser, let me give you this. One of the things I did when preparing for the podcast was I actually went back and reread Sun Tzu's Art of War and parts of Clausewitz. These are the two sort of major influences on strategic thinking. And you really have to ask yourself, and again, we'll explore more of this next week, but how applicable are these classic studies that generals have used for generations to help them think about how to plan, how to think about warfare apply? And, and as a sort of final teaser, I'll throw this in. Clausewitz made a very famous statement and you know, people argue about exactly what he meant by it. And we can talk a little bit more about it next week if, it's, if it becomes relevant. But warfare is an implementation of policy. And depending on what that policy is, that drives what warfare is and how subject warfare is to the goals and the minds of policymakers. Because warfare does not happen just because people want to go to war, at least in, in, in the modern age. So the question you have to backtrack and ask yourself is, what are the policy goals? What are we trying to accomplish when we use any weapon or any technology, be it AI or nuclear weapons? What are we trying to do and what are we trying to accomplish? That is a fantastic place uh, to leave it. Thank you very much, Michael, for, for coming on for this episode. Very excited to continue with part two, uh, which will be a continuance of our conversation on AI and warfare, but a little more refocused on uses of AI to attack infrastructure and how that changes the nature of warfare. So with that, Michael, thank you very much. And thank you to the audience for joining us. This has been another episode of the AI Experience. <laughs>